This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. According to their parents, over half of all students in the United States are going to school online. In district-operated public schools, 57% are online only. Only a quarter are receiving instruction full-time in person, and the rest are getting something in between. The percentages are nearly the opposite for young people attending private schools. Over 60% of private school students are every morning walking through the schoolhouse door. Only 18% are online. Charter schools, meanwhile, are sort of more like district schools than private ones. Two thirds are learning online only. Well, to discuss the implications of these stark findings, I have with me today Robert Enlow, President and Chief Executive Officer of EdChoice, an advocacy group for school vouchers, tax credits, education savings accounts, and other forms of private school choice. Rob, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, Paul. Well, Rob, first of all, let me ask you, do you believe these results that I just uh, reported out from the Ednext poll? I, even if I didn't know anything about uh, education reform after 25 years of being in it, I would argue that the incentives lined up by the way private sector, traditional public and charter uh, work out just in general would tell me that these numbers are correct. Private schools obviously are relying on parents to pay the, 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 the fees and, and therefore have a greater incentive to get their kids back into school and do it safely. Um, charters and, and traditional publics don't just have, have that same incentive. So these numbers are not surprising and they mirror numbers we found at EdChoice through our polling early in 2020 when private schools reported to us that, that they were not, uh, only 20% had an online curriculum when the, when the pandemic started and within two months over 85% did. So they're much quicker at responding uh, than our traditional sector. So that's all good news, uh, at least for parents who are able to access private schools, which is why we think every parent should get access to private schools. Well, you know, it, it, last spring, the big difference was Everybody was shut down, you know, everybody shut down everywhere. And so the big difference was, and we saw this in our poll last spring too, was that the, the private schools were more quickly finding ways to use digital instruction in a way that parents found was sort of working. It wasn't working perfectly, but it was working. But the fall, the picture changes. By the time in the fall, the public schools are getting a little better on the online learning front but the private schools are going right back to in-person learning. Are they putting these kids at risk of COVID? So I think what we're learning is, is the private schools that I've been in touch with in Indiana, for example, they are putting in so many more safety and safeguards than traditional schools are able to because they can respond so much quicker. So the International School of Indiana here, which is a very well-known private school, which accepts scholarship tax credits, um, they've put in UV lights, they've put in misters, they've been able to, to rapidly respond, as have many of our Catholic schools around the state. And so it's my opinion that, that, that it is, uh, the private school sector is making sure that it is safe for families to come back, right? Uh, it's sort of my, interesting. I have yet to come across a scandal that shows, you know, lots of kids dying because they went to a private school and caught the COVID. Is, have you come across any stories like that? No, there are schools that I know that have had children get COVID, uh, but not any kind of major scandal like you're talking about. The, the major scandal here is when you're saying teachers unions in Chicago and Fairfax County don't want to come back. They, they like not working uh, in person. They want to stay remote. In fact, the teachers union in Chicago basically said, we're going to strike so that we don't have to come back. 
I mean, so it's a very different environment in the traditional sector. Well, so why does the school system just not let them strike? I mean, if you're shut down anyhow, you, that way you wouldn't have to pay the teachers. Well, well, we because we care about kids learning, Paul. I mean, that's simple, right? We care, we care that kids get educated, and and as your poll says, you know, sixty percent of parents are saying that they're learning less, even though they're they're getting more, they're getting instruction. They feel that they're learning less, and that's a big deal. I mean, if we're going to continue to have a a problem in our K twelve education in America, which was already lagging the rest of the country and lagging the world, right? In many states. We've got to make sure our kids are good educated, which is why we need many more options and many more customizations, many more hydrizations, many more micro schools, homeschooling opportunities. Interesting, our polling is finding that the largest growth in homeschooling support is among low-income African-American families. They're seeing the power that they can have like they never saw before. Well, so uh, is there a shift? Are people leaving the district schools for the private sector? Have you seen anything uh, of that kind showing up in your polling? So the shifts are really starting, to, and you can see from, there's not huge shifts. Private schools have gone down actually a little bit. Homeschooling has gone up significantly, and public schools have gone down a little bit. So you're seeing a little bit of a shift away from the, the actual brick and mortar to an actual full-time homeschooling environment. And that varies uh, state by state. But uh, overall in the country, we're seeing small shifts away from public and frankly, small shifts away from private. Uh, and greater shifts towards uh, being uh, homeschooled. Uh, I think what's going to happen here, Paul, which is really interesting, is we're going to have to come up with a new model of delivering education. It's not going to be straightforward brick and mortar anymore. And what does that look like as we go forward? You know, will it be like a third, a third, and a third, right? It'll be a third will be all, all at home, a third will be hybrid, and a third will be in brick and mortar. How do we see that going forward? Um, I think our traditional schools are just having a hard time figuring that out. Well, how about these education savings accounts? They're sort of new on the scene. Uh, they are very flexible. Uh, and I know that uh, your organization likes education savings accounts, but I think a lot of people just don't have the faintest idea what they're all about. So what are these things anyhow? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. We, we think they are the wave of the future. Uh, and, and that's simply because um, just think about it this way. Traditional uh, schools are funded through taxpayers and the money goes to the school and the parent has to buy a house, right? So the money flows all through the government. In, the, in an education savings account, it basically flows from the tax, uh, the, the government to the taxpayer, to the parent, and they could basically purchase whatever service they want, whether that's it's a private school or it's a public school curriculum or it's a partly both or it's a charter school part, uh, part of the time or it's customization for special needs. We know families in Arizona that are using it for horse equine therapy because kids with cerebral palsy benefit from that. So what, what ESAs make, what makes them so powerful, it really puts them the money and the power in the hands of the parents to, to basically break free from any brick and mortar or housing choice they have to make. And it's very unique. And it's frankly coming along at the right time because that's what parents want. I mean, the, 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 as I'm sure you're pulling a scene, there has not been higher support for greater school choice in America than now, right? And that's particularly for all school choice. Well, so, so these uh, education savings accounts, they, they don't sound to me very equitable. How can you make education, I mean, if it's going to just let people not pay their taxes, well, then, you know, some people have a lot of money and they, they, they like tax relief and other people have almost no money and a lot of poor kids are in poor families. And so how do you make an equitable 
uh, education savings account? Great question. Uh, and here, here's the answer to that. Education savings accounts are funded in the same way traditional scholarship or voucher programs are funded based on a percentage of the school district's allotment for a child. Right. So in Indianapolis public schools, a child uh, who is a third grader uh, uh, living in our city will get roughly fifteen thousand dollars to go to a traditional public school. Right. And that same child in third grade who lives uh, two districts over will get about eight thousand dollars. So, you know, in terms of wealthier districts, we're finding that the higher poverty areas have more complexity funding associated with them typically and more state and federal money and local money attached to them. So it's gonna be automatically equitable, right? In some ways, because lower income families will have greater monies to, to draw from. Uh, but a lot of researchers out there say that the rich kids get to go to schools that have lots of money and the poor kids go to the poor schools that don't have any money. Is that really your example? Is that just- That's, that's not my experience of seeing how state funding works. Right. I mean, particularly state funding. Right? I mean, as you know, schools are funded both from state, federal and local money. And, and I, I'm sure you've seen this. You could take a kid in suburbia and, and, and compare the state of state allotment for that child between suburbia, rural and, and urban. And that urban child will get a significant amount more if they have because most school funding formulas have a base amount and then they add complexity. Is the child poor? Is the child got special needs? Does the child have other indicators that, uh, of, of at risk at risk issues? And so many school funding formulas across the country uh, from the state are already based in some kind of equitable funding for families who need more. Well, do you have to leave the public school in order to be eligible for an education savings account? How about if you, or is there a chance you can sort of do both and go to public school and get some of this money through your education savings account? So that's just great. Uh, I love that idea. Right now it is, it, when a child gets to, when a child becomes an education savings account student, the, the parent signs a contract with the state. They become an ESA student, right? Um, and typically that means they, they're not enrolled in public schools. I and our organization would love to see public school funding be uh, disaggregated to the point where a family could get that money and say, hey, I want this from the public school. I want math and reading, but I want my extracurricular French and something else from online, right? And so, yeah, we're beginning to see the ability to take categorical fundings uh, and put it into in the hands of parents who are in public schools to allow them greater flexibility and freedom. Well, you know, some people will say, okay, that's going to work fine for uh, people like my daughter, who's got all kinds of ideas for her kids' education. And, and, but, you know, poor families, uh, families that don't have the same degree of education and the experience, they just, it's too complicated to do all of this, uh, uh, pick and choose and assemble your own educational package. How do you respond to that concern? I, I, first of all, it's an important concern to discuss and have, right? But, but that means there's, there's two things in that. One, let's make sure we're not having the underlying assumption that I think often not with you or anyone else in our conversation, but often happens. And to, to, to quell that, I'll quote my, my dear old mentor, Milton Friedman. Um, he said, he said basically, um, ed reformers and social reformers often self-righteously take it for granted that low-income families don't have the capability to choose. And his argument, he said, that I believe is a gratuitous insult. 
Families, the history has shown that families who are low income have the ability to choose wisely and disinterestedly in their families and have done so many times. So if we start from the premise, uh, Paul, that we believe that families who are poor have the same capabilities to choose and just don't have same access to the system, then, then it just becomes a training issue, right? If they have the same capabilities, then it just means we put more resources into training. And I get to go back to my old job of being a social worker. Right, and basically go back and informing parents who are low income, having, and let me help train and give you information because I used to say this all the time when I was dealing with homeless men and women. If you put me on the street for two weeks, I'll die because I don't know how to access that system. You put me in a school system now, I know how to access it, know how to use it. So it really is a matter of education. So either we believe low income families have the capabilities to do it for their families and just need more information, or we don't. I tend to believe in the in the abilities of families to do it. Let's get them more information. So you think over the long run, this would work out to be effective for families from all kinds of uh, different backgrounds. But that's the evidence from your data and all of our data, right? So we know that, that school choice writ large, whether it's a voucher program or tax credit program, tends to help those who are less fortunate. You know, we, we're getting a lot of reports that there's more interest in uh, alternatives to the public school in light of the po uh, pandemic, in light of the Chicago Teachers Union, and, and you know all these things that are happening out there, uh, very likely could generate more support among the public as a whole for options. But there's still there's more intense opposition from teacher unions and from school districts. They're frightened to death that they're going to lose all this uh, enrollment, and they need and, and they're shutting down alternatives if they can. Um, how optimistic are you that it, within the next year you're going to see much progress in this, given the, the level of opposition that's out there? So, you know, there's always that tipping point when you lose, you lose your argument. And I think, you're, I think the teachers unions have to be very careful because I think they're getting close to that tipping point, right? And here's what I mean by that. So in some of our polling, at the beginning of the year, when we ask, you know, hey, uh, do you think school funding is too high or too low? Um, we've seen a precipitous drop in the, the percentage of people saying that it's too, too low. So it went from a, a lot of people think it's too low to not as many people think it's too low. When we ask about teacher pay, do you think teachers should be paid more? Um, that went from a high of 74% saying yes to now 63% saying yes. So I think the question for the teachers union is you're going to get reach a tipping point when you lose your customer. And when you lose your customer and you lose your parents, then you really have a problem. And I think they're getting there unless they figure this stuff out. If they don't start putting, and, 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 and I think it's even worse for low-income families. If I were living in Chicago public schools, I would be livid with the teachers union and saying that they're, they're not gonna help my kid get educated. I mean, and so I think you're gonna begin to see some, over time, some shifting of support for teachers unions in particular, uh, but obviously everyone supports teachers and we want we want the, the best for them. But I, I think you're going to see some support. And when you lose the parents, that's when you begin to lose the game. Well, the question is uh, whether or not um, people are really that unhappy or whether they're giving giving the teachers and the schools a sort of a pass. They're saying this is a bad year. Uh, it's, it, we never want it again. But, you know, Let's not judge, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not, let's not make a big, broad judgment based on just this one experience. Yeah, I, I you know, Paul, I, I, not to use this analogy because I'm not trying to be political, but I think like when 9-11 happened, America said, okay, you get one go at another country, 
right? And and we're okay with that. But when we tried to go, when America tried to go to another country, that created a ton of problems. I think that's where we're at. I think parents are like, okay, you get one go at this. We understand we're gonna give you a break. But the longer this goes on, I think the more parents are saying, and maybe not all of them, because parents definitely want, I mean, some parents just want to get their kids back into school, right? Some, but some parents are going to, a lot more parents than you think are going to want something different, right? And so I think we're getting to that point where we're at the second phase where parents are saying, okay, I've given you a break. I've given you the benefit of the doubt. You know, now I'm going to be okay with getting some education savings. Down. Well, it's interesting that the new, the president, President Biden, has now said he wants to open the schools very quickly. Within 100 days, he wants them open this year. Do you think he's going to succeed? Uh, do you know when 100 days is, if you count it out from now? <laughs> it's May. They're already closed. So basically, he's saying open up by summer so that you're already closed. I mean, the answer is he's basically saying that. And whether he gets it done or not, I, I think it's very interesting that he is now mirroring the previous administration's position on that. Um, but if 100 days is, is the end of the school year anyway, um, he's basically saying, we just want you to make sure you're open for the next school year, 2021-22. Well, how optimistic are you that the schools will be open in September? Uh, I don't know. Like everything in America right now, 50-50, right? I mean, you know, so, uh, you know, the greater the vaccine, you know, spread, spread the greater the greater the ability, maybe the, the more likely. But we have a huge issue, as you know, there's an aging teacher force, right? We're going to have teacher shortages. There's going to be a lot of complex behaviors, as you know, economically from our school districts, given all of these pressures that are happening, you know, with teachers retiring, with teachers getting older, with new teachers coming in. So I, I think I think you'll see more opening than not, but I still think there'll be some, some places where they don't. Well, finally, I'm gonna throw out this idea of a bargain. What would you think of a grand bargain? Let's give, uh, the state should take over the legacy costs transportation costs, some of these big costs that school districts have regardless of their enrollments and, uh, and, and then let everybody have access to the transportation system and lift the, the caps on charters and, and, uh, and introduce some uh, education savings accounts to give more flexibility to the system. It, what would you think of a grand bargain like that? Um, if you're saying to me that we should get the traditional schools should uh, have the freedom to not have to do real estate deals, purchasing agreements, transportation deals, uh, all these other things that are basically can be done by a whole host of other businesses, including the state, and that every school then becomes ostensibly its own school district. I'm all for that. Right. The idea that the, the idea that you can divorce uh, all of these central office features from school districts, you have, in, you know, in our city, we have 11 school districts, which means 11 different purchasing units and 11 different real estate offices and 11 different transportation schemes. My answer is that's just a significant waste of money. Just just let the school state take all that take on that burden or, or take contract that burden out, much like we do for Medicaid and Medicare and all these other services. And let the schools focus on what they need to do, educating kids, and then give everyone the same amount of dollars and go where you want. That's a great bargain. I'm all for it, Paul. All now, right. The great thing, yep. Paul, I would say about this, we'll give that side of the bargain, but I'm sure that the central office, because remember, we now have more non-teachers in education than teachers. So the likelihood of, of the reciprocation of that bargain coming back is, is probably next to nil. So, okay, so that's a fair, that's a fair point. 
But then there's also these legacy costs. How about the legacy costs that are out there that, you know, if you do have a significant movement away from the school district, then the school district is stuck as they were in Michigan and Detroit with a lot of uh, uh, contracts they signed a long time ago, which they can't get out of. Uh, and you can say, well, that was their fault. But still, if you're going forward, how, how can you accommodate that, that reality? Well, I think, I mean, I, there's, we should be thinking creatively about it. First of all, we shouldn't just be accepting it. There's, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to ameliorate debt, right? And, and, and a lot of school districts have a lot of debt and a lot of maintenance costs, right? One of the real challenges is take the, take the building costs onto the state so that we can have a little bit more of a simple way of looking at it. I mean, because some of these buildings, we're spending so much time trying to keep a building alive that, that really should be, you know, frankly, bulldozed and put up another one, right, to be blunt with you, if we're going to save money. And, and there's a difference between historical buildings and all that. But, you know, I'm happy to say that legacy costs could probably be more taken on by the state and think about it creatively. But, but also think about it this way, since the voucher program started in Indiana uh, in 2011, between 2011 and 2018, states have reduced their, districts in Indiana have reduced their debt by 27% and increased their cash on the hand by 10%. So I think in states with school choice, you're seeing a lot of benefits to public schools already. Well, this is fascinating, uh, Rob. I've, I've enjoyed uh, the conversation with you. Uh, the, your polling is really doing a lot of uh, uh, service to all of us who want to know what the state of public opinion is on all of these crucial issues. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. And your polling, Paul, at Harvard is amazing. We appreciate it. Well, I've been speaking with Robert Enlow, President and Chief Executive Officer of EdChoice. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.